Right, I'm delighted to say um, that following up up from that fascinating interview, we now have what I'm sure is going to be another fascinating interview with <laughs> Professor Catherine Bernard, who's a Deputy Director at UK in a Changing Europe. Good morning, Professor. How are you? This good morning. morning. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at so, such short notice. We, we, we really appreciate it. Um, we, we've learned um, what the Lugano Convention is from our previous expert. Um, what are the key challenges that you see the UK encountering now not being part of the Lugano Convention? And how can this current kind of impasse be resolved? How can we persuade the, the council to, to let us in? Well, I suspect they won't let us in. Um, I suspect this is a, a largely political decision um, because, uh, one, it's to do with Brexit and uh for the EU to make it very clear that there are consequences following a decision to leave. But also um, the Netherlands and uh, Germany and France um, all want to get their hands on a share of the extremely lucrative business, uh, the business in legal services, which is currently done through London. And so it's absolutely in the, the interest of those countries not to allow the UK to join up to Lugano. And so what we have done um, is we've signed up to the Hague Convention. It's not as good, but it's not so far short. Um, and I think um, the argument is at the moment, certainly from the UK government, is that um, let this one lie. If the EU sees it as a dimension of the single market, uh, therefore, um, we're not in the single market anymore. Therefore, no to Lugano. Will, will, will membership of the Hague Convention be uh, be sufficient for to prevent some of the you know some of the the big law firm, law law firms from having to kind of reconsider where they operate from? No, I, I don't. Uh, well, uh, Lugano would have helped us a lot, but the Hague Convention is already pretty good. Um, and, of course, uh, the law firms in London aren't just dealing with EU matters, they're also dealing with um, international trade matters. And it's still the case that a lot of commercial contracts have an, what's called an exclusive jurisdiction clause um, uh, based um, on London or based in, in England and Wales. Um, and so I think it's the case that uh, certainly large law firms will stay in the UK. But remember, this is such a lucrative market um, that uh, all sorts of countries are trying to get a hand in uh, on the, on this business. And so you see Singapore working hard to try to attract some of this business, particularly working out of um, Asia. New York, of course, is incredibly successful. What the one thing that the UK does have in its favour is a rather good time zone and, of course, um, excellent lawyers in city firms. But then Singapore and New York will say that they have that too. And, of mm. course, the English language is a great advantage, but then Singapore and New York have that too. Mm. Um, the Netherlands more or less has that too, given the quality of um, language provision in, in, mm. in there, uh, slightly less so in Paris. Practically, what does it? Practically, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the fact that um, the the Lugano Convention making it less attractive, for, not being part of the Lugano Convention, making it less attractive for British law firms to be used um, because uh, they would um, normally be using the British courts. Um, That's right. 
and that those and that and that it's now it would be less advantageous for those cases to be adjudicated in British courts. Yeah, because the issue is that the judgments mm. will not be recognised mm. um, in uh, under the Lugano Convention. But a lot of those judgments will be recognised under the Hague Convention. There mm. is a um, a particular type of jurisdiction clause that doesn't get recognised mm. under the Hague Convention. Mm. But the Hague Convention is a good start. Mm. And but as I say, it's it's largely pol- it's, it's political on both sides. Yeah. Um, it's political for the EU to say, look, you you d- decided to leave and there are consequences with that. And by the way, we want quite a lot of your business. And it's political for the UK to say we're not going to push it because we have deliberately and consciously decided um, not to be part of the single market. Mm. Could you tell me a little bit more about what UK Interchanging Europe is and does, please? Yeah, of course. So um, we are um, a non-partisan think tank, so, um, and we were set up before the 2016 referendum and we're funded by the Economic and Social Research Council um, to provide non-partisan um, evidence-based information about all issues concerning Brexit and since Brexit, uh, the alternatives um, to um, an EU membership for the UK mm-hmm. in its relationship with the EU. Um, and that's what we've done since 20, the very start of 2016. So, one thing I'm really interested to 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 know, take have your view on, is has you know we we were pre-pandemic, we were in the throes of the Brexit debate, and um, you know we'd finally got to the point where we were going to see, you know, whether all of the whys and the wherefores and um were actually going to materialize and who was going to be their right and i I know who was going to be right in their assessment of what the impact of brexit would have been and i know that it essentially there was a long-term impact um before we could truly make that decision in your opinion what what effect has the pandemic had um and are we now going to see are we now going to uh, see more impacts or are we feeling the impacts already? We just haven't been hi- highlighting them in the media. Yes, I, th- I think it's a bit of both. Um, mm. We have been feeling the impact um, since the 1st of January um, of this year. But a lot of the uh, impact has been masked by the pandemic. Um, and that's largely to do with the fact that people aren't travelling. Um, and once people start travelling again, assuming we go back to something like normality, um, the effects of Brexit will be felt. Now, um, there was, you might recall, there was great concerns that there would be um, huge queues in and around Dover because of the time it would take to process the paperwork. Um, but the very fact is that Dover was only having to deal with haulage traffic. It wasn't having to deal with holidaymaker traffic as well meant that actually some of those fears were um, proved ill-founded because of the pandemic. Um, And uh, likewise, um, at the ports, um, people who are able to travel so much reduced compared to um, in previous years. But in future, um, because free movement of persons has ended, um, where uh, those who travel a lot will notice it, is that they will still be able to travel, of course, um, but they will only be able to spend um, a limited period of time, uh, 90 days out of every 180 days in EU states, and mm. that's the cumulative period. So if I go to Spain um, for three months to get some winter sun, um, I, I can only go between October and January, and then I've got to wait and come back and then wait another three months 
and then I can uh, then the next 180 day period will start again, and that means I can't travel in between times. So um, this will make life for holidaymakers more difficult. But anyone who wants to physically provide services, this will be much much more difficult, as we've already heard about musicians. Mm. Were we naive to believe? when we were told that there would be no checks on the border or in the sea um, between Northern Ireland and, and, and the rest of the UK. And, and what do you think is going to happen next regarding the Northern Ireland Protocol? And where does that leave the Belfast Treaty? Yeah. So I, um, it, was to, it was always totally incorrect that there would be um, no uh, checks um, uh, on goods going between England and Northern Ireland. It was always absolutely clear that that would be the case. And I'm afraid when the Prime Minister said there will be no checks, this was incorrect. Um, uh, where will we go on the Northern Ireland Protocol? Well, it depends very largely on the politics. The Northern Ireland Protocol is the best of a bad job um, in trying to square the very difficult circumstance, the circle between um, uh, the UK leaving the EU, but Northern Ireland um, not having a border with uh, the Republic. And uh, so it really is in all sides' interest to make the Northern Ireland Protocol work. But inevitably, the Unionists were deeply upset um, by the Northern Ireland Protocol because it does quite a lot to try and physically separate um, England and Wales and Scotland from Northern Ireland. And if you're a unionist, you say, well, we are part of the Union of the United Kingdom, and um, that includes uh, Belfast as well. Professor Bernard, it's been wonderful listening to you this morning. You've, you've really helped further elaborate on this. And, and, it, <laughs> and I think it's high time that we started talking about Brexit again, quite frankly. I miss it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure we're going to be talking about it a lot in, in the time to come. Uh, thank you for joining us at such short notice. Pleasure. Thank you very um, much and, indeed. And wish you well for the rest of the day. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye.